Amazing how fake laughter can yield <laughs> yeah. real laughter. I'm in a I'm in a humorous mood, I would say. <laughs> Which that turns out to be perfect for this our poor episode. craziest party of the year um very seriously commanded in multiple sources i know we have a spiritual obligation to tie one on as they say in the midwest <laughs> <laughs> what is purim we're, we're 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 uh we're celebrating this holiday with great joy but what's the what's the deal so this is a holiday where we read maggie lot stare so i'll do a really quick rundown of of the book of esther so in the book of Esther, the Jews have been exiled from uh, Jerusalem, and there's this population living in Persia, in the city of Shushan, the capital city of the Persian Empire under King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is kind of a bumbling, embarrassing king. First off, he throws a big party. He wants his wife, Queen Vashti, to come dance for him and entertain everybody in some lascivious way. She refuses. And then he has her executed. And that's horrifying. But then he needs a new queen. He does like a star search type of like, let's find the next queen of Persia and gets all these women together and chooses a young lady named Esther, who is Jewish, but does not reveal that she is Jewish and becomes the queen. And that's at the instruction of her uncle, Mordechai. Then comes this advisor to the king named Haman, the villain of the story. He says, let's get rid of the Jews. I hate the Jews. I want them all dead. He asks the king, is it cool if I issue an edict to that on a randomly chosen day? we get to kill all the Jews. And the king was like, yeah, that sounds fine. Long story short, Esther is like, listen, I have to tell you something, King Ahasuerus. I, your beautiful queen, am actually Jewish, and these are my people, and you can't let them be killed. And, (laughs) yeah. And in the end, it all works out. It all works out. I mean, it is sort of like a nevertheless she persisted story, but with a happy ending. Um, Right. And Mordecai gets honored and paraded through the streets for some reason because he saved the king's life in an earlier incident. And Haman gets publicly hanged. Yeah. And then the holidays instituted forever. Exactly. Exactly. I do think, I I just realized, I was was like, wait, is that, I think Vashti is banished. I don't think she's killed. She's... Really? Oh, okay. Living in the, at least that's how I read it. She's living in another part of the house. She's just not allowed to see the king anymore. My mind went straight to violence because I've been that's I've been that. habituated by this book to expect violence. Um, um, I swear we learned in school that they beheaded her and brought out her head on a plate. Brutal. Yeah. 
I don't know why they went out of their way to teach us that. I mean, I, th- <laughs> I, I think that it's, I, I think the school thing is relevant because I just feel like this is such a, this is such often framed as such a kid's holiday. Like it's, I yes. remember being like a Purim carnival at school where you could win goldfish. That was the whole thing. I mean, the goldfish would often die within a couple of days, but I think that these, like these exaggerations and sort of like, ch- you know, childhood distortions are part of the fabric of the holiday. Right. Um, because that's, what, I mean, just to sort of like do a chaotic rundown of appropriately chaotic rundown of the traditions associated with this celebration. There's putting on costumes disguises there's getting drunk there's feasting there's celebrating there's the giving of gifts to the poor and um, also to friends and loved ones um there is hearing the megillah read out loud you shake Mm -hmm. or spin groggers to blot out the name of haman whenever that name is read all these sort of like traditions that feel like very tied to like children like i think of like kids theater like it's fun it's like fun yeah, and there's a tradition of like really goofy Purim plays. Yes, and everyone getting really jokey, and people I mean, are allowed to cross dress. That's a halakhically in instituted permission on Purim. Blazoned in my soul that <laughs> trust that moment me. in law. Um, and and then there's the fast the day before Purim, yes, Esther's fast, which is a solemn fast. In, yeah. And apart from that, though, it's supposed to be the whole month of Adar is supposed to be joyful and yeah, um, just the whole month of Purim is supposed to be the happy, the happiness month. Yeah, well, we'll unpack some of this. As we'll see, it's actually quite a dark, um, politically, spiritually, queerly, very naughty holiday, and um, naughty, we're going to yeah. get into some of that uh, <laughs> so with sweet. our four questions. Naughty, naughty. Okay, we're already in pun zone. The traditional four questions of Purim. Or the non-traditional ones that we just made up. They, uh, well, let's start. Let's we could do them all question. at once. That's sort of the important way to do it. Until <laughs> we don't know the fourth question from the third. The first question is, who comes out of the closet on Purim? Ooh, yeah. Well, hopefully lots of queer people who want to, for one thing. Um, I mean, this is where, just to say, this is where like that, Prohibition. I remember when I was teaching at a Hebrew school on the Upper West Side when I first moved to New York and wore this dress to the Purim party. And I did not, I don't, I think I just sort of decided like, oh, I'm Vash. I think I decided on the way, I just knew I wanted to wear a dress and I just said like, oh, I'm Vashti. And the the cantor of the congregation seemed very uncomfortable and said to me, well, you know, this is the one day where this is allowed. And that just like blazoned itself on my <sighs> head. And so I do think that there's, so coming out of the closet, like, is this a day of closeting? Because people who are perceived to be one gender are told like, get back in your gender closet after this day ends. Or is it a day of coming out of the closet of sort of recognizing desire for oneself? Um, right. That. The the theme of um, hiding one's identity it, like is actually really strong in a in a number of different ways in this um, holiday and in this story. I mean, I have a lifelong weird, uncomfortable relationship with costumes and dressing up myself. I mean, apparently this is true for a lot of trans people, but like if there's like a costume day or like Halloween, stresses me out so much. Yeah. I just tense up and I'm like, I can't 
do it. It's not fun for me. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that seems pretty directly linked to my transness and sort of, for one thing, it's just a, for most of my life, it was like a source of pain to, to think about what I was wearing, how I was presenting myself. And then also a pervasive sense throughout my life of being kind of in, in hiding or uh, having secrets and, and wearing a costume every day. Yeah, so I'm really bad with the porn costumes. And and then for other people, of course, it's like this liberating moment. And it sounded like almost like you were like, maybe this is this is a moment of experimentation and freedom. And then somebody kind of smacked you down. I mean, it's also, but like, yeah, that smackdown is real. But also just the idea that I feel like I, for so much of my life, framed things in terms of performance that were actually deeper truths about myself that I do think that that I don't know that it was a moment of liberation insofar as I was still for myself framing it as like, Oh, I'm going to do this funny thing for this special occasion. Like, or I'm going to be in this show and I'm going to wear this thing for this show. So there's this costume situation. There's also just like, there's the the coming out, the coming outs that happen in the book of Esther. There's also this question of Esther coming out as Jewish within the palace, which is a Mm -hmm. fraught thing. She's told over and over again by Mordecai to stay in the closet until the very end when he's like, you got to, you got to say who you are and, and save us all. Um, yeah. And there's also this question of God being in some ways closeted or hidden in this story. Cause God's name doesn't show up in the book. I mean, the name Esther right. is tied to the idea of concealment, hiddenness. There are all these ways in which people have found little hints of God's presence in terms of language in the book, but right. how, well, how God is costumed and how God is closeted is a big part of the story. Yeah. Um, you you had this thing from from Deuteronomy, right? Um, it's Deuteronomy thirty one eighteen. It says, "And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evil which they shall have wrought, and that they are turned unto other gods." This is something that, like, God is saying, if and when you eventually turn to other gods besides me, I will hide my face. But in Hebrew, it is haster, astir. It's the same word as Esther, almost. Esther could be imagined. I mean, it kind of means I will hide. It's sort of like a verb form of hide. It's a very interesting overlap between the character Esther sort of um, making a secret of her of her Jewishness and the ha- the the role of God in the Purim story being concealed because i mean the the sort of standard religious gloss on the story of porn is like god's name is not mentioned god is never explicitly acting and yet god is sort of hiddenly directing all of these events events that seem so coincidental but are not coincidental at all Ooh, excuse me yeah and i think I mean, I think we'll get into, I'm realizing we will get into the question of God's absence question mark later, but I do think that there's, it's important to see that, that, that Esther's hiddenness is tied to a hiddenness. Like the rabbis are interested in the relationship between Esther's hiddenness and God's hiddenness. Yeah. And I liked that question you were asking about this, like the story the story's position seems to be like, well, Esther had to be closeted in order to 
become queen and then she had this power and then that's like why she was able to save the Jewish people. But like, do we have to just accept that like closeting is necessary? Um, Maybe if she had been out as Jewish from the beginning or earlier, um, there would never have been this decree against the Jews because it would have been shot down immediately. Cause it's like, um, you can't say the queen is illegal, you know? Right. I mean, it's, it also is so, Esther is so um, passive for so much of the book. I hadn't realized, I had sort of forgotten that she's like, it's not like she's always had an interest in being a pageant girl. Like, it's not like she was sort of went out to audition for the king. It's like, she just was like taken. They were just taken people and she was taken and (laughs) brought in and had to spend a year putting on these various perfumes to get ready to see the king. And then the only thing that is said about her for most of the book is that Mordecai told her not to reveal herself. And she did as Mordecai commanded. It's like the same Siva. It's the same word that we use to talk about God's commands for us. Like it's, she's just sort of like going along with what's being told to her is the right thing or the acceptable, the normal thing to do, which makes me wonder, you know, we think of hiding as like an active thing. I have, I am who I am and I'm going to make a conscious decision to conceal it. But what if, concealment is the norm that we're raised in and marinate in and are told to sort of come up through for our whole lives. And we don't even know that there's an alternative. And it really is when Esther starts, things finally get interesting when the edict is commanded and Esther says, you know, she's has fears and has a back and forth with Mordecai about this. But I do wonder what would happen if she had, because the women being collected for the King's pageant were coming from all over the kingdom for all different presumably all different nationalities and sure, right. cultures and religions. So it's like this massive kingdom. It's yeah. Um, and I can't help but think that there's a, I mean, this is my own cultural speculation that there's a, there's a reflexive anxiety that we have as Jews, which is makes sense. Cause there's been a lot of anti-Semitism throughout history, but a reflexive anxiety we have about rocking the boat. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's part of why that Cantor felt the need to tell me that that day that, this is the only day that it's allowed. Like it's sort of not like I was asking or doesn't matter. Like there's an anxiety that, that things that people will be, um, will cause distress or might cause a, a kerfuffle if they come out as whether it's coming out as Jews in a non-Jewish context or coming out as I think coming out as queer in a Jewish context and worrying like, what will Bubby say? What will this happen? What will, you know, I think this is what I feel like I've been told in Jewish contexts when, I've been told not to be out as myself yeah. is like, well, it's just going to be, it might make people stressed out or it might be complicated. There's just a lot of anxiety that we have as opposed to the default assumption that, you know, you are as God created you and that's your obligation is to be your full self. So I think that there's, I, I see in yeah. Mordecai's telling Esther, like, keep it quiet, keep it quiet. Even though they live in this multicultural kingdom, this old, old, I mean, trauma-based anxiety that we have. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, the thing that sets off Haman's rage is that Mordecai, everyone's bowing down to Haman as he walks the, through the streets or whatever, and Mordecai refuses to bow down. And um, it's like, oh yeah, the Jews won't, won't bow down to anyone but God. And, and, it's, uh, and, he, and Haman's like, I hate the Jews. The Jews won't bow down to me. We got to get rid of them. And and Haman's pitch to Achashverosh about like, here's why we got to get rid of the Jews is here. I'll just read it from this translation I have. 
There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your realm. It's like they're everywhere. Their laws are different from every other people's. They do not observe even the king's laws. Therefore, it is not befitting the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be recorded that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 silver talents into the hands of those who perform the duties for deposit in the king's treasuries. And so it's like they're different. We, they're not blending in. Uh, so like the problem with the Jews for Haman is that they're not closeted enough. Um, right, right. And it is a weird thing, actually, just thematically, that like Esther. I think I think the point of Esther's closeting is to come into power. Um, like you can be a nonconformist weirdo, and maybe you'll survive. Maybe you'll get attacked, but you definitely can't be in power if you're a fucking weirdo. Um, or if you're different. And that's the assumption. I mean, it reminds me of other biblical characters who are Jews, but they, but they come to power. Like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, I mean, Joseph, there's a, there's a a bunch of parallels, by the way, to, to the book of, to, to the story of Joseph, um, with Esther. It's not entirely clear if he totally conceals his background, but he becomes unrecognizable as a Jew and his, his family doesn't recognize him and um, he changes his name to an Egyptian name. And then he's like, he gains so much power by doing this. And then there's like Moses, Moses who is a Jewish baby, but is raised in the halls of power. And, you know, then he tries to defend a Jew and ends up killing a, cop and then it's then it's all over he has to leave um so it's an interesting thing that that the bible has with jews and like the people in power is it good for the jews to have power like is that possible it seems like it's just very fraught it's like it can happen and maybe that's good but um but nobody expects it to happen i guess like i mean it's making me I, I just like looking we back expect at, to get hurt is what i mean you know right it, it really does bring up the thorniness of that if our question was who comes out of the closet on Purim, it really is a question about power like is it is is being exposed in that way a stance of power or is it a stance of vulnerability and it has a lot to do with timing and a lot to do with who i mean i was just as you're talking i'm like what if if pete Buttigieg had been elected president would he have suddenly come out as like a radical fairy communist (laughs) like with that was that his whole long game of trying to make it into the halls of power somehow i doubt it but yeah i mean like what if we find out joe biden is a trans man and he's completely stealth okay i'm (laughs) going to reddit after we record this and i'm going to start this as our (laughs) joe biden is trans is stealth trans like that's the esther story i mean like (laughs) Give you some kind of game changer for trans people. Um, it just seems like it's unclear whether being in power is the right thing. I mean, it's that's where I feel some some like queasiness at the end of this book when it says like Mordechai was like quite gadol, like the, the, the greatness of Mordechai and the greatness of Esther, because we've seen so many people. I mean, that 
between the various books, the advisors who are the most cherished advisors of the king change. Like all the all the highest mm-hmm. eunuchs are swapped out book by book. Like it's so clear that there's so much turnover in what who is powerful in this kingdom. And yeah. so when we say that Mordechai became very great, I hear like, oh, just like the last 12 people who were great for about five minutes and then were pushed out. And I think that, that there is always that instability around right at the fringes of the closet yeah i know and and it's such a scary like if vashti got killed or even if she got banished like the last queen that rocked the boat you know paid yeah. for it question two <laughs> is exile always a bad thing is it such a bad thing to be in exile would it be so terrible for you to go out in the world a little bit and become queen of Persia? You know, yes. Would it kill you to? Would it kill you to put on a tie? Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. The the old the old dress up anxieties are coming back to me. Oh boy. Um, um it might kill me to put on a tie. Um, <laughs> here are two queers for questions. We love the word galut. We love the word of- galut. Yeah. Why this question came came to us. This is definitively a story about exile. I mean it Galut, says Galut means exile. Galut means exile, yes. That it says I mean it's in chapter two when we talk about Mordechai's background. The word exile comes up or versions of it come up four times in one verse. It's just like really, we are really Yeah, what's the verse? It's like um he had been exiled from Jerusalem in the group that was carried into exile along with the king, which had been driven into exile by this king. They call the group. The word for group also includes the root exile, like the exile group. Yes. Yes, um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's just, he's he's just dripping in exile, Mordecai. And well, I'm yeah. what you discovered that about the timing of this vis-a-vis the temple, like it's not like they've, there is obviously forced exile in the history here, but it seems like what did you uncover yeah. that the te- the second temple had already been rebuilt, so it's not it, like they they could I guess have it's gone disputed. There, to... there, okay. it's sort of disputed whether whether some say this is in the period after the first. Well, it is after the first temple has been destroyed. Um, I think scholars are like we can date these things. It seems like the second temple was already had already been rebuilt. And these people were staying in exile. And some contemporary, um, especially like Zionist thinkers, have been like, Mordechai is like not so great. And um, he didn't want to go back to Israel. He was like trying to make an, a, a Jewish community exile. And that's not cool. And like to me, that just, you know, I am so thankful that there are Jews who don't live in Israel and that's that's us. And that's um, so many Jews. And also I think, and the, and this is one of the things we want to talk about with exiles, like something happens, some really important transformation happens when the Jews are exiled and don't have their temple as the central grounding place for all of Jewish religion and ritual. Um, we were looking at, at, you know, our hero Marcus Jastrow's dictionary of 
words used in the Talmud. And the word, the word exile, galut, or gala, you know, um, that root is the same root as gilui, or or gale, gala, the, the word for uncover, um, or reveal. Um, there's a lot of valences of this word. To gilui means known, or made known, made public, and it also means uncovered. Um, I don't know, I always think of... Um, Bil'am in, in the book of Numbers, who says, Gilui Enai, like fallen down with uncovered eyes. But there's something about being exiled that is like about being uncovered um, and pushed into the publics, into the public, and thus made vulnerable. Like, and I mean, we're back to the, clo- the closeted stuff. To to be in exile is to be visible and, and maybe vice versa. There's also just to like throw more into the salad before you start to put it on plates and eat it. There's like the distinction <laughs> between, I, I think it's become as in my mind too, the distinction between oral and written culture, because there's a sense of the root is also tied to the word for publish, which right. like makes sense in terms of push into public, um, make visible and I, in my mind, it's like to be in the Holy Land is to exist in a place where you hear the pure voice of the divine. You don't need to write anything down. You don't need the mediation of written language. But that our tradition had to become written because of exile, because it right. had to exist in, in language and <sighs> print. And there's so much like in this book of Esther around laws being published like that's i think the word the same root comes up in the way that the king's laws are distributed throughout the kingdom that a, a role rule is lit and it's sent translated and it's sent around and then there's much at the end about how um esther and mordechai write down this story mordechai writes down this story there's just like it's yeah it's it's tied to the way laws are made in the sense that i think when you're in when you're not in exile you have this pure relationship to um you almost don't need to be commanded. You just sort of like know what you hear the voice, you know, the thing and you do. Um, So it feels tied to these, um, the sort of the flawed system of written, written law to me. Yeah. And just the process of, I mean, to write something down and to codify it is to like translate it from an idea or a feeling or a culture into like a book or a law. And to translate is to betray, you know, um, I mean, something with a fixed written form, it's just, it's a representation and a representation is sort of a betrayal, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so there's like something going on there with, with like being exiled from your home and you're, and you're being sort of seen by other people, you know, and opened up to them, to their eyes, to their, influence and if the question is is that a bad thing like i mean it's like it's a complicated thing yeah i i also just think that there's something there's some just like the question well two things one like the argument that it's not so good that mordechai had to be in exile because he was you know an esteemed member of the government right the government he's part of the jewish judicial Um, body the sun sunhedrin 
but you know, if he hadn't have been here in Shushan, maybe the Jews would not have been saved. You know that there's like a, there's a sort of, the world works in mysterious ways. We never know. Sometimes it's the right thing to be in exile because, I mean, this, but that feels to me like the logic of you make the best of the situation you have, or there's a sort of divine order. Well, yeah. I mean, it makes me think of like the complicated value of like visibility and trans visibility. Like it allows a lot to happen and you can, you can sort of in some ways inspire or protect other trans people by your visibility. And also maybe not <laughs> like maybe you can't protect anyone and maybe you're more vulnerable if you're visible, if you're exposed in that way. But yeah. What was the, what was the Talmud thing about? That was, I, I think that was all I was saying was that, that idea that he, I'm, I've lost the source that said he was here. I got no. it. I got it. It's Megillah 13 a. Okay. Um, this is from the Talmud. The verse states with regard to Mordechai, who had been exiled from Jerusalem, Esther 2 6. That's the verse we were just talking about with all the exile mentions. Rava said, This language indicates that he went into exile on his own, not because he was forced to, to leave Jerusalem. He knew that he would be needed by those in exile, and therefore he consciously left Jerusalem to attend to the needs of his people. So that makes, I sort of understand the logic of that. And I think that there's a way in which we can translate this idea of exile into like descent into darkness and into brokenness in the way that Mm. Hasidic tradition likes to do that. It's that sometimes going into the places where you feel farther and farther from holiness, um, where you feel more and more exposed is it's like leveling up in terms of being able to reconnect with source and reconnect with the light of the divine. Yeah. So that there's like a exile can be like a, a profound spiritual experience too, not just sort of a, it's like a, there's a political negotiation to it, but there's a spiritual negotiation to it too. Yeah. In the darkness, you, you find out what your, what your flame really means, what it does. I just also want to, th- I mean, maybe we should turn to our next question, but I want to throw one more thing into this mix of exile is that there's so many threshold moments in this book, which is tied to that question of not just, being in Holy Land versus being in exile, but sort of quivering on the border between them. There's so much, I mean, I've got, I'm kind of fascinated by the, what gets translated as the eunuchs in this book. And, and mm-hmm. they're described as like the guardians of the threshold. They're, they're the ones who sort of like navigate the space between the masculine world of the King and the feminine world of the women. They sort of move between these two spaces. Um, Where are they described that way? Like The phrase in Hebrew, I wrote it down is, Mishmere Hasaf and Saf is threshold. Yeah, they're like the they're they're gate guarders and they're and they're eunuchs in that role. Yes. And that and that similarly Mordechai is the one who like hangs around the gate. He hangs around the Sha'ar Hamelech. That he's the one who if that's how he hears about this conspiracy theory to kill the king, it's how he stays in touch with Esther. He's just like a person who's hovering in this in-between space, whereas the king is in, and and Esther too. When she approaches the king, there's this imagery of her looking through the doorway and him seeing her, and then deciding to extend the scepter. Same with Mordechai and Haman. Mordechai sees is like walking home and sees Haman is walking home and sees Mordechai and gets so upset. There's this sort of like seeing people through a doorway on the other side. That feels like the space where things happen and where things change. It feels like the space where important knowledge gets circulated, where power dynamics shift. Mm-hmm. Um, Meanwhile, the king is like in 
Bather's Beit Hamel. The king is in his house. Haman goes home to his house. Like these are the people who have they have a home. They have a structure that surrounds them. They're not on the threshold. They're like well right. set up in their pedater. And I think right. that that's in some ways a place of safety, but it's also a place of like of stiffness and yeah. disconnection. Um, so just to say that exile insofar as its exposure, I think it feels not just about being outside of Holy Land. It feels like being in a threshold space, being in the in-between. Yeah. 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 Diasporic Jews are trans is what you're telling me. Yeah. 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 Um, I think I was sort of a little afraid to say it, but I think. <laughs> yeah, no, it like, and, and our house, the, the temple has fallen and we have no house and we're like out here exposed and that makes things possible. It makes it possible. I mean, Purim is kind of a key, a theme of it is like things just getting turned on their head. Like what was planned turned out exactly the opposite of how it was planned. Like something this day that was supposed to be the day they kill all the Jews became a Jewish holiday. You know, they're like, I don't know. That's just trans. That's like, you know, things seeing that there's a possibility where other people see no possibility, where, mm-hmm. where other people see a wall, you, you have a door. Question three. <laughs> Question three. Who has authority when God seems absent? Wow, we're not taking it easy on these questions, are we? No. Who has authority when God seems absent? There are a couple of reasons why this question is relevant to this holiday. Right. And they we, are one, yeah. the, one that God seems absent in this book. We talked about that. Another is that there's so much in this book about authority on the part of the king. Like there's weird ways in which I think that the king's behavior and his issuing of laws is kind of like a caricature of what we might imagine lawgiving is. So how it sort of becomes like a, in some ways the book of Esther can be read as a, like who wrote Gulliver's Travels? What's Um, his name? Jonathan Swift. Jonathan Swift, like a sort of Swiftian essay on authority and power so it does seem like deeply preoccupied with power and authority in a certain way but then halakhically there's all this conversation about um where the command for this holiday comes from because in the book of esther this is the thing that esther and mordechai come up with they say we're going to celebrate this holiday and people say great we're going to celebrate this holiday and it's Mm -hmm. sort of surprising that like it's not that god says you should celebrate this holiday it's that they say it and there's in the talmud there's discussion of like how do we know that this book was actually divinely inspired, which is a way of roundabout way of getting us back to divine authority for this holiday? Do you want to go into the story about the Sinai and the acceptance of? I mean, I I do. It's like the first story I think of when I think of Purim almost. Maybe the second. <laughs> um, I'll tell that story in one minute. I just, I'm, you had an amazing sort of read that like, that, that the King Ahasuerus is like a parody of what God isn't. His authority is so conditional and constrained and like kind of pathetic. You know, he ha- he has this vast kingdom and like he can't really control anything and other people are more controlling him. And the Jews start out totally subservient and by the end they've sort of seized all this power. Um he also like his also his laws can't be he doesn't have the power to revoke his laws, which is like right. the laws the idea that yeah. the law would become more powerful than the ruler is so different from our relationship to God and God's sense that God makes laws and God 
exerts mercy and God, you know, makes accept, you know, understands, makes exceptions based on yeah. a relational. No, that's all. It just is. And everyone talks. I just, it's so funny how everyone says like, if it pleases your majesty, like if it's tov beinecha, if it's good for you, if it's good for you, why don't you do this thing that I want you to do? And he says, you know what? I thought about it and I think I'm going to do this thing. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just like, so it's so backwards. Um, yeah. I mean, there's also a, a traditional gloss on like, it often says the King in, in the book of Esther and, that's like a sort of red as a knowing wink an elbow in the ribs. Like we're really talking about God here. God is doing something right now. Um, but other times, you know, it doesn't hold up. It's like, um, yeah. And the whole thing starts with him talking about how like my kingdom is so big. I mm-hmm. have so many countries and so many cities and I have so much wealth and I'm so great. And it just feels, it's like a, toddler imitating god in the book of job about making right. the leviathan it's like oh wow yeah you're if you you're have important. to say you're important you're not you yes. know or like if you have to say you have power yeah you're pretty insecure about it um yeah, yeah but let me let me go to this fascinating thing in the talmud um which which starts as a reading of something from exodus it's from um Masechet shabbat Page 88a, for those of you following along. Um, and they stood at the bottom of the mountain, Mount Sinai. That's Exodus 19.17. Rabbi Avdimi Barhama Barhasa said, This teaches that the Holy Blessed One overturned the mountain above them like a tub and said to them, If you accept the Torah, excellent. And if not, here will be your grave. That's the oft-quoted part of it that's like... Sounds like an abusive relationship to me. Yeah, frightening and coercive. But then it continues, Rav Aha Bar Yaakov said, From this, there arises a major objection to the legitimacy of the Torah. Rava said, Despite this, they later accepted it freely in the time of Ahasuerus, as it is written in the book of Esther, the Jews confirmed and accepted upon themselves and upon their descendants. Esther 9.27, they confirmed what they had previously accepted. Okay, so like, this is like, kind of a crazy, illogical claim, sort of. It's like, well, okay, maybe the covenant at Mount Sinai was coercive, but later in the time of, in, in the book of Esther, they freely accepted the whole Torah. And it's like, First of all, that verse quoted in the book of Esther has nothing to do with accepting the Torah. They What they accept is that is Esther's decree that this is going to be a holiday called Purim. It's almost the opposite of accepting a divine law. They're accepting a human law. But there's something so interesting about this to me that like it's in exile that that it's possible. It's in this dark time of attempted genocide that it's possible to like fully affirm this thing that was previously you had no choice about, which is I think like being a Jew, you know, or, or being under God's authority. I mean, one of the thing that's things that's kind of moving about it to me is that like at Mount Sinai, they're like, they've escaped slavery and they're just in the wilderness and they're just so clearly a, a unified group. And when you're sort of like surviving like that, you're just surviving and you're a wandering group. It's like, yeah, we just have to 
have all the same laws just to get along. Like there's no other option. Like either it's like be out here and unite as a, as a society or, or go back to slavery or die in the wilderness. In the time of Purim, they're like in the big city and they could assimilate really, you know, they could, they could just become Persians and they don't have a temple anymore. But it's there that they are like, no, we are going to be Jewish. We're not going to bow down to Haman. We're we're going to see this story as a continuing story. And there can be a new holiday. Yes, like there can be a, uh, it can become Jewish law that we celebrate this thing that just happened. I don't know. The, the whole thing is so fascinating to me. I mean, um, the thing that occurs to me as you're saying this that I think is so radical about the whole framework we're talking about is that it's the Talmud is really saying that real authority is consensual. And this is what, you know, why we talk about a breach and a covenant from the beginning, that it's not about God is so powerful that they can tell you what to do and you have to listen because they're just so much more powerful. Although God is, they say pretty powerful that it only becomes authoritative when there is, this is what I say, and this is what I consent to. And even though there is this power imbalance, that consent is still really important. It's almost like, it's not just that the rabbis are anxious about the fact that this is a, a law that is commanded not by God, but by these people. It's that the rabbis are anxious that like this, this law be seen as consensual or that this law is what allows mm-hmm. us to see all of Torah as consensual. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you might say that like <laughs> one, the major rabbinic project is to convince everybody that, rabbis can tell you what to do you know <laughs> right yes 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 um and and like yeah it, it but that idea kind of border it it's just very it's borderline heresy you know i mean there's it's not longer yeah we don't hear a voice from heaven telling us what to do we have to figure it out and it both becomes like harder to swallow harder to believe and more like sort of optional and then but it also becomes more consensual if it's optional I guess that's the thing. Like, it's such a beautiful thing to have the option to be like, I'm not, you and I could just stop being Jewish in any observable way. And it would be just this, as it is for so many Jews, just this little family, the quirk of our family history, just an unimportant fact from the past. But choosing to be Jewish anyway, it becomes a very different thing than just being like, yeah, Jews are always Jews, and I can't get out of Jewishness no matter what I do. Which, like, once again, there are parallels between Jewishness and uh, queerness, you know? Yeah. Makes me suddenly wonder about reading Esther as an assimilated Jew, even though she's so close to Mordechai. Like, what if Mordechai's like, don't tell him you're Jewish? And he's like, Uncle Mordechai, I'm not, like, I, I'm, I don't <laughs> identify that way. Yeah, and that I'm not really Jewish, yeah. Right, is she consenting to is she consenting to this identity in a certain way in the course of the story? I mean, the other, the ultimate like thing that I think is so, and this is maybe tipping us towards our last question, but the line that caught me in the Megillah this last time through was towards the end in 928, as they're talking about this holiday being accepted and observed in every generation, that the days of Purim, these days of Purims did not pass from among the Jews. Um, and I think the like most immediate way of reading that is that these days of Purim were observed in every generation, like the, the tradition yeah, it became a permanent holiday, became a permanent holiday. But I think that the other, I mean, 
we haven't really said this, but that the name Purim comes from Pur a lot, and it's the system of random chance that Haman right. used to determine the day in which the Jews would be massacred. Yeah. And I think that there's a way of reading this that's like this force of chance, this force of like danger and perpetual instability in life never left the Jews. Like that we did, you know, we may have achieved political power in this moment, but we were in, we had this random wheel of fortune hanging over our heads till the end of time. And I, yeah. I think it's, it's poor forever. It's poor forever y'all. And I just think that there is something quite powerful still in saying like, what does it mean to consent to that randomness to say, yeah. I am so powerless in my life and I have no control over what's going to happen to me, but I consent to that powerlessness uh-huh. um, and that I'm going to move through it with as much grace as I can muster and trust that like, I'm going to, you know, I, I just think that that's like an incredibly wild proposal and a wild offering to consent to one's powerlessness and to consent to the randomness of the world in which we live. It's very kinky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, and no, I, um, and also that it could be feature, not a bug, you know, like yeah. um, that we could love a powerlessness to some degree um, or, or just stop grasping after power, you know, um, take what comes and not in a way like lie down and take it, but like, like, I don't know, you know, take power when it comes our way and accept when we don't have power and when we're like doing all our freedom underground or under oppression I feel like I have to mention the, the, the old Hasidic guy that I met one yeah, time yeah, yeah. when I went to, I went to one year long ago, I went to the, went to 770 Eastern Parkway, the headquarters of Chabad. And I went to Purim and uh, it was a wild time. And there was all these old Hasidic dudes sort of like wearing clown wigs and stuff. It was really funny. But this guy asked me, Hey, did you put on tefillin today? And I was like, no, he was, I think he was going around asking all the, unbearded youngsters um if they put on to fill in today and i said no and he'd help me put on to fill in um say the shema and i was like just enjoying it he could see that i was enjoying being there and he said to me you like Borum? and i said i do and he said remember this every day is Borum." <laughs> and yeah it's like the days of Borum. Did not pass away. <laughs> Every day is for him. I don't know what he meant exactly. He didn't say more, but I, I took it to mean like maybe uh, this kind of joy and energy, you can have this every day. Um, yeah. you, you, it, it comes from within. But maybe also the, the absurdity aspect. Like every day is, is totally absurd and impossible and, and ridiculous. And just enjoy it. I kind of feel every time we do these, I kind of feel that I want to live inside the holiday we're doing forever. And I, I felt that with Sukkot. I mean, I guess, but I guess like every day of Shemini Atzer, it doesn't have the same ring as every day is Purim. <laughs> but I think that there is, I really like that. How much the more, you know, if every, if every holiday I wanted to be every day to be that holiday, like how much the more so with this. Um, you can go through the whole Jewish year in the cycle of each day. Yes. You feel all these feelings in uh, a 24 hour period. question for why do we throw a wild party to commemorate such a terrifying event this is the question that's been on everyone's mind this whole time (laughs) yeah as we talk about all these traumas and attempted genocide and closeting like oh wait this is the party holiday this is the fun one this is the fun one uh 
And it goes both ways because the Jews are going to be murdered, but then the Jews murder a lot of people. So it's not, you know. Yeah, no, it's terrifying what what happens at the end of the book of Esther. Yeah, there's there's mass violence on the day that was supposed to be the the day that all the Jews are killed by the state. The Jews are allowed to (laughs) kill people, I guess. And uh, I mean, it's like what the new law is, is not exactly clear to me. Maybe if I looked closer, but like 75,000 people are killed by Jews at the end of the book of Esther. It's, it's, it's a bit horrifying. It's like a war breaks out. And that, that by the way, in the school children version of this story is, I felt like it was completely erased. I'd never even heard of it until I was like 22 or something and paid attention one time. The tone of the whole thing could be totally mournful and upsetting. (laughs) And yet it's just like, this is the most fun day of the year. Let's dress up in crazy costumes. I mean, the two things, the two points of Torah that feel relevant in this are, are this Yitzchak connection, which I think is, as we've talked about, way more than super exciting. And this, but maybe we start with this. This is maybe a little more straightforward. There's this line in Mishnah about, you should drink until you don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. Right. Um, and so this is this, there's all this interpretation of what that, are we really supposed to just drink and drink? Are we, there's some ugly, there's a weird story that happens after this that I've never seen before about Raba killing Rab Zaira while they're drunk. Like there's just oh, strange should, stuff. Yeah. I mean, um, maybe we can keep quickly read that, that okay. story. This is Megillah 7B8. The Gemara relates that Rabbah and Rabbi Zira prepared a Purim feast with each other and they became intoxicated to the point that Rabbah arose and slaughtered Rabbi Zira. The next day, when he became sober and realized what he had done, Rabbah asked God for mercy and revived him. Him being Rabbi Zira. The next year, <laughs> Rabbah said to Rabbi Zira, like, remember last year, let the master come and let's prepare the Purim feast with each other. We had such a good time. And Rabbi Zira says... Miracles do not happen each and every hour, and I don't know if I want to do that again. <laughs> yeah, it's like somehow God brought me back to life last time, but I don't think I'm going over to your house anymore. <laughs> yes. So, so this idea of like drinking is really kind of it's like scary drinking, at least in this, and also just like in a holiday where we're trying to. There's such a stark difference between the evilness of Haman and the virtue of Mordechai. What does it mean to want to forget that distinction? What does it mean to want to lose that in the moment of yeah. being saved by it? It really goes close to a kind of nihilism and maybe like a, a sort of traumatized, like, let me just forget everything. <laughs> and I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think this is a nihilist holiday exactly, but there just might be a touch of like, nothing means anything. What we think of as righteousness or evil is just all a, show it's all a costume that the universe is wearing and like it's all if you let's just sort of get drunk and lose our hold on all of our values (laughs) and i mean i think it should be i always wanted to be mentioned around around purim that like to fulfill the injunction to to become intoxicated until you don't know the difference between mordechai and Haman does not have to be like alcohol or whatever drug there's sort of, I mean, Hasidic people talk about a sort of spiritual intoxication, like other ways of fulfilling that, that are more, that are deeper. I mean, it has a, it has a valence of joy to me, a, a joyfulness. To me, it feels like 
and this isn't based on any text or anything. It just feels like everything is good. Everything is happiness. And that was something that, um, that I heard a Hasidic thinker talk about very briefly. Like, like some people get to a place where they can't even think a negative thought. They, they like everything seems positive to them. There was that guy, I think it was called Gamzu because he would, he was called Gamzu because he would always say, Gamzu Latova, this also, this too is for the good. And they'd be like, this terrible thing happened. He'd be like, Gamzu, this too is for the good. And here's like, you know, everything is, is like part of God's plan and everything is good. And like, um, <laughs> I don't know. That's like the positive gloss, I guess. I mean, to back um, you up on that, before we go into the darkness of nihilism, I found this um, reading from this thought and that looks at the word, the word that gets interpreted, translated as intoxicated, also translated as to mellow, um, right. has the root, same root as spices, basam, basamim. Oh, and that, that's cool. And so, spasemis connects it to the spices that we um, smell on Havdalah to sort of comfort our souls about the departure of Shabbat and also link spices to sort of like spiritual elevation. And he says that like when you ascend higher and higher levels of sanctity, sort of like departing the world of illusions and the world, the created world towards the divine, you come to the point where you realize that all things are one, that there is no, that even... Mordechai and Haman, who seem like such polar opposites, are both part of the unity of God. And so it's not about like losing track of a moral compass. It's about ascending in this spiritual way to a place where you understand the unity, even in this world that seems so black and white and so violent, um, yeah. that all these things are a part of God. And I I was looking at that, I was reminded that we do, there's a passage from Esther that we say as part of the Havdalah service, the Yudhya Matao Rav um, And it seems interesting to me to think about Havdalah in connection with Purim because it's this moment of making distinctions. Oh my and God. And it's a I moment of like separation. Yeah. This is this came from this spot. I met thing like of making distinctions and that, what does it mean to be able to hold both moments of distinction to Mavdil ben Kodesh the whole to separate holy from um, ordinary, but also to see that there is, it's like, there's a little bit of Purim every day. There's Shabbat every day that the sanct that, at the highest level of God, there is this oneness of God, that there's nothing that is outside of God, even um, the things we want to separate and distinguish ourselves from. So I think that I like, I like, I really like that idea of, I think that's what I think of when you think of the joy that you were talking about, like you have to find this deeper joy. Um, And yeah, the joy that this all comes from one source. Um, But there's this nihilistic vibe too, that I feel like you're getting at. Yeah. Well, it's, There is a feeling of Purim as the name, which means lottery, uh, suggests that like these things that happen to the Jews are just, they seem so random. They just see that random and terrifying and you just never know what history is going to throw at us. Maybe there's a touch of like, let's just have a party. Like, let's just have fun while we can before they come kill us, you know? But, but also maybe the positivity of this holiday is a kind of communal resistance. And it's like a peoplehood strengthening thing to have fun with each other, to put on plays. We have Mishloach Manot gifts to each, to each other. You just, you just bring food to 
other Jewish people or to other people. And then Matanot Lev Yonim is another one of the things you got to do on Purim is, is give gifts to the poor. And it has this community sense that goes right with this, like, some people hate us, you know. Um, Haman hates us. Haman is a descendant of Amalek, and Amalek hates us. The Shabbat before Purim is called Shabbat Zachor, and you read a little short little reading about, um, remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. I'll just, this is almost the whole thing. How undeterred by fear of God, he surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary, weary and cut down all the, all the weak ones in the rear of your party. Therefore, when your God, Hashem, grants you safety from all your enemies around you in the land that your God, Hashem, is giving you as a hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Uh, and it has this weird contradictory, like, remember to forget, <laughs> remember to erase the memory of this wicked group. And it's it's kind of complicated um, because it's this sort of mythical evil group that is not identifiable really historically in any way. And hope I don't think should be put onto any like group today. And that often is weaponized for like political reasons that I think is an illegitimate move, but it's like Haman is Amalek and, and every anti-Semite is Amalek and, Maybe also Amalek is this is some kind of internal thing, some kind of force of negativity that we want to completely get rid of. I mean, it's striking to me in that passage that like, after all your enemies stop bothering you and you're just at rest, then get rid of Amalek, you know? So it's like, it's like when you're not at war, that's when you got to focus on eradicating this negativity. I mean, I, I'm a fan of contemporary Rabbi, Rabbi Shai Held, who had a gloss on this, that like the fact that the weak people in your group were toward the back of the group and they were vulnerable to attack, that is Amalek, that the fact that they weren't protected, eradicate that tendency to leave weak people vulnerable. And like, that's the real project here. That's beautiful. I mean, it makes me, yeah, I hear that I also just think about what it means to be to live under in precarity to sort of live with trauma obviously there's a link between literal addiction and alcoholism and trauma but mm-hmm. there's I think a thing that wears you down um this other passage from Tractate Megillah that I that struck me today in talking about these feasts um and the Mishloch Manot and the gifts that you send to each other on Purim um, Abaye says, when I left the house of my master, Rabbah, to go to Mare Bar Barmar, I was already satiated. However, when I arrived there at Mare Barmar's house, they served me 60 plates of 60 kinds of cooked dishes, and I ate 60 portions from each of them. The last dish was called pot roast, and I was so hungry I wanted to chew the plate afterwards. And in continuation, Abaye says, this <laughs> explains the folk saying that people say the poor man is hungry and does not know it, as Abaye was unaware how hungry he had been in his master's house. And I think that, like, I love the idea of Mishlach Manot as being something you give to the poor because you give, you share resources with people who literally don't have resources. But I think if we think of ourselves as the, um, the poor in that we maybe don't realize how empty our cups have become and how hungry we've been. If we've been living 
with trauma, with stress, with the sense of danger from the world, how do we sort of like give ourselves the gift of like, here, have a, have a hearty meal, like eat, feed yourself, feed your soul. That is like, that does feel that is poor and doesn't realize it. That is hungry and doesn't realize it. And I think that that hunger, that sort of like spiritual hunger that we refuse to acknowledge in ourselves. I think a lot of people feel after these last couple of years, especially we need to grieve and grief is like so inseparable from joy. And in some ways this, not just like be happy, but this kind of like really grief tinged, openly grieving joy is the thing that will feed the part of us that is hungry. Because if we're just feeding ourselves, you know, that's the, th- we, we, we really need it. We need this sustenance. Yeah. A Purim, so like Purim could almost be like a, like a wake kind of, or like, like when you have a, a funeral yes. celebration where you're like, there's a kind of release to it. You're feeling pain. And then you're like, we need to be together and do some like letting some, some nourishing spiritual nourishment and also, also some of that like letting go of um, all the grasping that we do toward distinctions and grasping we do toward power. Oh. It has an element. It has an element of release. This partying, <laughs> yes, and acknowledgement because and this is the Torah that I think you shared with me once, in which the Shai held thing about Amalek made me think that like we become Amalek to ourselves. I think you said that we desire to cut off the parts of ourselves that are weak. We become the uh, ones who want to sort of destroy the parts of ourselves that are not, um, that we wish we didn't have to deal with. And I think that there's something about bringing those vulnerable parts of ourselves, not just not cutting them off, but bringing them to the front, bringing them to the center. Those are the, those are the, those are the poor of our own soul. Those are the vulnerable parts of our own soul. And how do we, it's releasing. It's also accepting. How do we acknowledge them and invite them in? Um, yeah. Take care of them. If you want a nice coda to this conversation, there is a podcast that has been shared with me that I delighted in listening to from Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld called Inward. And there's a bonus episode on Purim that gets into this Yitzchak stuff. Yeah, we were we were going to talk about Purim's connection to to the biblical character of Yitzchak of Isaac. Um, and I think our our grasp of it is a little too shaky to to really bring it. But like, go check out Inward with. Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld. Oh, too good. Too good. Um, I, I love this stuff. I could talk to you forever, Agnes. Uh, it's good. Maybe we can have, maybe we have a mish day. Good thing every day is Purim. Happy Purim, y'all. Bye.